Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Why does making friends as an adult feel so what hard? What should I wear on a first date? What the date? hell is a foreign But that hookup was, was not good. So what do I want my life to look like in five years? We want to know too. Since 2012, the Every Girl has been an online destination to help women around the world achieve the life of their dreams. Now, we're excited to bring you the same inspiring content with the Every Girl Podcast. Welcome back to the Every Girl Podcast. I'm your host, Josie, and we have a fascinating episode for you today. Tell me if you've heard this before. Be assertive, but don't be a bitch. Be a leader, but don't be bossy. Be nice, but not too nice. You have a resting bitch face, or you seem like a pushover. As women, we are bombarded with mixed signals of how we are supposed to act, and we're stuck in this impossible bind of caring about being liked. Alicia Menendez is an award-winning journalist and author of the book that addresses this exact problem, The Likeability Trap. This conversation is so powerful, and I even joke in the episode that it felt like a therapy session to me. It's a conversation that I think women everywhere will identify with, but we also talk about how the system we're in is not helpful for any gender. Alicia offers really tangible takeaways about how to get over the likability trap and show up as your true self in the workplace, social settings, and your relationships. Funny story about this interview... A couple days after I talked to Alicia, I was at a PR event and talking to other women in the industry, including a founding partner of one of the most popular brands right now. And she was telling us about her experience being a woman in a male-dominated industry. I told her one of the tips Alicia mentions in this episode, and she was so impressed. She was like, I've never heard that before. I have to write that down to tell my female employees. And I felt so cool. So thank you, Alicia. But really, this conversation is jam-packed with groundbreaking advice. And I think Alicia really gives vocabulary to what all of us have experienced. I cannot wait to hear what you think about this one. Please welcome Alicia Menendez to the Every Girl Podcast. This week's review comes from The Mama Meg, who wrote, I've been looking for a podcast to listen to while I work. This one is enjoyable and informative at the same time. They cover so many topics, and I really feel like I'm sitting in on a conversation with the smartest and diverse group of friends. Definitely worth a listen. Thank you so much, Meg. This is such a lovely, wonderful review. It means so much to us. Don't forget to DM us at the Abergirl Podcast on Instagram to collect your Starbucks gift card. And then we have something really exciting for next week's giveaway. Unless you live under a rock, you probably saw our 2022 gift guide is live on theevergirl.com and we will be giving away top performing products and some of our favorites if you leave a review to rate the podcast. So for this week, we are giving away one of my favorite items, the Base Cosmetics Bag. It is one of our absolute favorite brands. We love you, Base. I gave this item to my mom last year. It's seriously a must-have. I'm obsessed with it. My mom's now obsessed with it. 
So don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts for your chance to win a base cosmetics bag and the color of your choice this week. So let's go ahead and dive right into the big topic. What is the likability trap? Ooh, that is a big question. And part of the reason it's a big question is because likability is really hard to define. You know, what I find likable might not be what you find likable. The trap itself is sort of a misnomer because in reality, I identify three different traps. There's the trap I think we're most familiar with, which is what I call the Goldilocks conundrum, too warm, too strong. A woman, it seems, is never quite right. And that's that what we expect of women, warmth, communality, wanting what is in everyone's best interest, is very different than what we expect of a leader. We expect leaders to be assertive. We expect leaders to be aggressive. And what that means for women is that as they try to lead, they can either be a totally likable woman, but not be seen as a leader. Or if they try to take on those more classic attributes of leadership, if they are assertive, if they do say what needs to be said, um, that they get dinged for not being likable. And it makes it virtually impossible in this moment to be a likable lady leader. So that's one. The other thing is that we're living in this moment where there's a call for authenticity, where we say, show up as your full and authentic self. And I would say that that is really only meant for people who are presumed to be competent, right? People who, when they walk in the room, are like, they know what's up. They know how to get this job done. For the rest of us, for white women, for people of color, there isn't that presumption that we know what's up and how to get it done. And so we have to prove and prove ourselves over again. And sometimes it feels like being truly authentically ourselves you know, runs the risk that people won't see us as the leaders that we are. And then there's the ambition likability penalty, which I'm going to guess a lot of your listeners have either read Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In or they watched her TED Talk. And she really brought this idea into the mainstream, which was that the more successful a woman becomes, the less other people like her. Just cuts. Because we're so unaccustomed to seeing uber successful women that when we do, we say, Ooh, she must have done something terrible in order to ascend to that level of leadership. Part of what I misunderstood about that was I used to think that was like a one-time choice. Choose between being successful or being likable. Choose between being ambitious or being likable. And if that were a one-time choice, I would say, Josie, just choose to be successful because you can't be successful unless you try. And if you choose to be likable, there's no guarantee of that either. The problem is for women, it is every decision you make along the course of your career where you're you're deciding, how much is this worth it to me? Is this the thing where I push a little bit harder? Or is this the thing where I say, okay, I'm going to let this slide and not you know, face the ding for being less likable because I'm identifying a problem. And so it starts with hiring. It's every time you ask for a promotion, a raise, a stretch assignment. It is as you ascend into senior leadership that women feel this push and pull between being ambitious and being likable. Wow, my mind is just blown from your explanation alone, but that there are those like very distinct, almost like uh, opposing thoughts constantly going on in our heads of like, do we want to choose to be like? Do we want to, you know, be ourselves? Which, like, what does that mean? How do we know what that is? Like, that there's all these opposing ideas going on in our heads constantly. So that was like the perfect summary of like, 
you know, the entire book that you talk about, obviously so much more in depth, but why do you think, I know, again, this is going to be like a very, maybe like large question where there's so much to, but why do you think from your perspective, does these likability traps affect women so much more than men? One of the things I learned is that across cultures, we socialize women and girls to think of themselves in relation to others. And I would argue that in some ways that can be a superpower for women, you know, knowing how your words and your actions impact other people. I actually wish we'd see more of that. Where it becomes a challenge for women is when everything we do is dictated by how other people are going to read it, interpret it, whether or not other people are going to like it. That's when we stop showing up as ourselves. You know, I wrote this book in the context of work because I think for women, that's where we pay a, a penalty that is measurable in our wages, in our promotions. But it happens with our friends too. It happens with our significant others where you know, we're constantly asking how much of my true, authentic, whatever that is, nine-year-old self who is running around in free t-shirts and dirty sneakers, can I bring to this interaction, to this relationship without worrying that that person will be rejected? Can you talk actually more about that? Like, what does that socialization look like that we're doing for young girls differently than boys? And I'm really fascinated by you calling that there's a part of that that's a superpower that maybe we should teach everybody because you know that would maybe change a lot of issues in our world. Like, can you talk more about that? Like, what are those qualities that we're expecting out of girls that maybe are the superpowers? And then at what point does it become damaging instead of a superpower? Right. You mean like being nurturing? Like we, it's seen as a superpower in the context of being a friend, a girlfriend, a wife, a lover, a mom. It's not seen as a superpower at work when workplaces function best, when everyone feels safe and when they feel psychologically safe, when they feel like they can take big risks. So it's not even so much that there's a point at which it changes so much as that the way we have thought about what a great leader is has been really, really narrowly defined. And then to answer your other question about why girls and not boys... We expect girls to be caretakers. We condition girls really, really early to care for others. And again, there is a lot of value in that. The bigger problem is that we're operating in a society where care work, whether that is actual care work, like being a babysitter, a nanny, a child care worker, isn't seen as work that has incredible value, even though it does. It's our way of looking at that work that has to change. That's so interesting. Okay, so... I know you start off the book in an amazing way that I love where you're like, I care about whether or not you like me. Like, I think the way you started off the book was so just like the perfect way because it it identified with every single person. Like I was like, I care so much about being like too. And, and so you really kind of get to the root of how everybody's feeling reading the book. So can you talk about like, you know, when we're so focused on being liked and other people liking us? Maybe what is the harm in that? Like, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that are like, oh, you know, so it's it's okay to want to be liked. Like, what's wrong with that? Like, can you talk about why is that? What is that holding us back from? Yeah, it's so funny. when you Whenever someone repeats that first sentence of the book back to me or whenever I read it, there is a part of me that's like, feels like it's a little cringe because it's not <laughs> perceived as cool to care what other people think about you. Like, I would love to be that sort of Jennifer Lawrence, 10 years ago, girl who's like, oops, I tripped on stage, whatever, you know, like <laughs> yeah. that, that is 
a type of chill that I will never have, but will always <laughs> aspire to. Totally. The cool girl. Yeah. Just like whatever. Everything's rolling off my back. Nothing rolls off my back. I soak in everything. <laughs> yeah. um, but part of what was interesting to me as that person, and as you said, you know, for you reading it and being like, oh, this is me, this is everyone, is it's not. Like there are women out there who actually don't give a damn who really sort of do what they want to do and are less occupied in their thinking by what others think of them. And what became interesting to me as a person who really cares is those girls pay a price too. They pay a price for being so brazenly themselves. They pay a price socially. They pay a price at work because we're so unaccustomed to seeing women just do that, right? To operate, to move in the world according to their own preferences. So I thought that that was super interesting too. And and what is lost is, is a few things. I think we all lose out because we have less leaders who are able to show up sort of authentically as themselves. And there's also something that happens to women like you and me who do care, which is we spend a lot of our time thinking about the things we've said, the things we've done, and how other people have interpreted them. And there was a term that I found while I was researching the likability trap, which is rumination. This idea of like thinking to the point of overthinking and one idea bleeding into another idea until suddenly you're a rabbit hole of I'm the worst ever, right? So it can start with, I forgot to say hello to Maggie at school pickup and oh, is that weird? And is she now not going to think that I don't like her? And is her kid not going to want to have a play date with my kid? And am I ruining my kid's life? And like all of a sudden you were down some strange path that is hard to pull yourself out of. And I think it's hard to quantify the amount of time and energy that women lose to thinking about what other people think of them. And part of it is, you don't know. It's all an interpretation. You're always interpreting other people's responses unless you ask them and you get an actual factual response. And so to me, it is about the emotional cost, the time lost, and the authentic leadership that we're all missing out on if women don't feel that they can show up at work and lead in a way that is true and authentic to them, whether that be that they're an assertive, aggressive woman who feels like they can't do that because then they won't be seen as likable, or whether it is a warm communal woman who feels like she won't be taken seriously as a leader. So it, it kind of reminds me, and this is maybe a random thought that came to my head, but I forget which actor it is, like if it was Tina Fey or Julia Roberts or someone said, I don't want to play one type of women. I just want to play a character and not it be defined as I'm being this type of women. So that's kind of the point is that it it's not about acting a certain way or caring about a certain thing. It's about just being able to show up as ourselves, again, whatever that looks like, without it kind of having this charge of like, you know, you're coming off as bitchy because you're being bossy or because you're not a good leader because you're weak, like without having those associations with it, like it's just able to show up as yourself without having those cultural defined characteristics, right? Totally. It's funny that you bring that up. And I love that you bring it up, Josie, because once I was interviewing Mindy Kaling at an event called Women in the World, and we were talking about how the character in the Mindy project, when she was pitching it to executives the response was sort of like, she, she's not likable. <laughs> like, why is she Whoa, doing some of these things? Yeah. And and the pushback from Mindy and from you know her creative partner was, yeah, but she's relatable. 
And isn't that so much more interesting? And I think about that a lot in my own life. I think about it as one of the tools, you know, not so much at work, but more personally that I have found really helpful when it comes to this question of likability, which is oftentimes people just need to understand where you're coming from. People need to understand the conflict that you're facing. There's a little bit of over-communicating that actually can just really help people understand. Like, I'm not doing this just to be difficult or I am not doing this because I am being particular. There's actually a set of circumstances that I think if you understood, you would relate to why I am feeling this way, showing up this way, acting this way. And so... It's funny that you bring up the actresses because that's it. Like, it's not just in the world, it's Hollywood, it's audiences, complicated women. You know, it's still not seen as a, a thing that has value. And in reality, I think some of the most interesting television characters of the last few years have been women where I'm like, would I do that? I don't know, but I'm intrigued that she will do that. Yeah. And I want to watch it because it's the relatability, not the likability, which kind of makes me question, like you saying that, like the immediate thought that went into my head, it was like, not likable to who? Cause I like love the character. And, and so I, I think that begs the other question is like, likability is obviously subjective, right? So who is defining what's likable and not likable? Men, men are defining what's <laughs> likable and not likable. I mean, that, that, yeah, that, 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 that that's answer. part of it, which is because they've had the luxury of setting the standard of leadership, they have also set the metrics and it is you know, very much defined by what have traditionally been considered masculine characteristics. I also want to mm-hmm. say here, that's bad for men. So like the same way for women, um, we're really not allowed or we're penalized when we show up as angry at work because a woman who is angry, it is seen as an internal deficiency, not as something that has happened externally that has caused this response from her. So the same way women aren't allowed to show up as angry at work, men aren't allowed to show up as sad. The same way if I all of a sudden flipped out on someone and yelled at them, which I'm not condoning, nobody should be doing that. But if I did, there'd be a penalty for me the same way if a guy came into the office and started crying, there'd be a penalty for him because he would be seen as soft and weak and emotional. And those are things that we have been taught we shouldn't value in men. So to me, it's like women have a lot to gain. People of color have a lot to gain by an expansion of how we think about leadership. But like everybody does, because then it's sort of no matter who you are, how you show up, there's just more space to be showing up as yourself. Yeah, that's really interesting that there is obviously this very defined likability trap for women that that is, I mean, very clear needs addressing. But that's a really interesting point that there's also this factor for men of like, I'm, I'm even thinking of personally, like you don't see a lot of men cry. You don't see a lot of men show emotion. I don't think a lot of men growing up are really taught. Here's how to use feeling words. Here's how to express your emotions. Like it's all about either keeping it in or it comes out in ways that are like thought of as macho, but it's so toxic, like violence and aggression and all of those characteristics. So it's really interesting that there is this likability trap on both sides and it's not serving anybody. Like it's, it's kind of the entire culture is suffering from it. So that is, is such a fascinating idea. I'm really curious about, I know you mentioned that there are a lot of women who don't care about being liked, which is hard for me to wrap my brain around. Cause I'm like, everybody I meet, I hope you love me so much. I'll do anything. So it's funny to 
like think about, and I totally can like pinpoint the, the women I know in my head who are, who to me seem so confident and sure of themselves and couldn't care less if people care. Are there certain characteristics or, you know, similarities between, I guess, people like us who care a lot what people think and then women who maybe don't care? Like, I'm, I'm curious where that initial obsession comes from. Well, I think two observations. One observation, this is not quantifiable, this is not based on data, is I tend to notice a relationship between a woman who has a mother who didn't care and then a girl who cares a lot. And then I, for example, will likely have daughters who don't care and it sort of flip-flops. And I think part of that, again, it being very anecdotal, is you almost see the price you pay the other way, right? Like my mom just sort of moves in the world. My mom is like has a very black and white sense of right and wrong. She operates uh, by her a very clear compass and she's not particularly concerned with what other people think about her. She's like, and if someone doesn't like her, she assumes there's something wrong with them. There's still a price you pay for that. And I think when you're a kid and you watch that, you say, hmm, is there a way to save myself from that? And you kind of move in the opposite direction. I think likewise, if you have a mom who's a people pleaser, who you might perceive as a pushover, I think there is also this desire to harden yourself and to be a more assertive person. So that's one piece that is completely anecdotal. What I also saw come up a lot is, and I, and I write about this in like Ability Trap, is that race layers on in a really interesting way. Um, you know, I had a, a friend who is Black and as I was telling her about the book, she's like, well, it's very white of you to care so much about being well-liked. And, you know, part of what she was intimating to me and what I heard from a lot of Black women and then was, you know, really echoed in research is in Black homes so often, there's not the assumption that when you send your kid out into the world that they're going to be liked and loved and supported in general society. And so you bolster them at home, especially Black moms tend to bolster their kids, tend to say like, you are loved, you are wonderful, like you will always have a safe place here at home. You can't afford to worry so much about what other people are going to think about you. You're not going to get that validation externally. And so there's a very strong sense of self that can come from having parents who raise you and love on you that way. And so again, I think that can be kind of incredible to go into the world that way. What bothers me is then a world that is not ready to greet or embrace a person, a woman who has a really strong sense that she is who she is and she likes who she is and she doesn't want to change for other people. Yeah, that's really fascinating that there's obviously the uh like so many other factors probably of race and class that that play into the sense of self being very different. And then also like how much weight do you put on other people's perception of you? So that's fascinating to see how deeply those things can be ingrained within you. What I thought was really, really interesting about the book is that you point out like just how deep that obsession goes with things like, like there are so many self-help books. I actually thought it was so interesting when you talked about what's that one, how to win friends and influence people, like the iconic book. Like everybody knows that book, right? It's like iconic, classic. Because when you said that, I was reading it, I was like, oh my God, we are obsessed. Like we are obsessed with being like, because I I thought of it like, oh yeah, we want to be popular and we want to get likes on Instagram. And, but it goes even deeper than that, that when we think of self-help, aka like how we think of improving ourselves, 
we are looking to books like How to Win Friends and Influence People, which have everything to do with an external validation of us, not an internal validation. So it's also interesting hearing you say too, how it's a lot about your sense of self. Is that how we can work on getting ourselves out of the likability trap is focusing more on our sense of self? I like that as an answer. I mean, I think the interesting thing about something like a how to win friends and influence people, which by the way, just side story, I like tweeted out that someone I worked with needed a copy of this book and the Dale Carnegie Institute found me on Twitter and sent a free book, which is a very (laughs) fast way to win friends and influence people. A hundred percent. Yeah. Give people free stuff. I was like, totally. You give me me free stuff. I'm there. Um, Is there still value to it? People like to do business with people they like. People like to do favors for people that they like. It's why it would have been really easy to write a book that's like, likeability, who cares? Let it go. Don't worry about it. And it's like, that's just not true. That's not honest. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like you get stickers from the person who's checking you out at Trader Joe's if you like thank them and like smile and act kindly. Like that is just... I have kids and they're not giving me stickers, like they're giving my children stickers, but like you get, you know, like you have those interactions multiple times a day. Um, and I think that everyone should be kind to each other. So there's sort of like that as, as a baseline. What can we do for ourselves though? That's the bigger question that you're asking, right? How do you disconnect from this? I think a big part of disconnecting from it and part of why I wanted to write this book is just identifying that it's a thing that's happening. It's a thing that's not in your head. And for me, as someone who likes to obsess about something, if I was going to take likability away as the thing that I was obsessing about, I had to replace it with something. Relatability, which we talked about, is is one of those things, You know, being really clear about why I'm doing things. And as it relates to leaders, vision, sort of being able to say, like, this is where we're headed. This is where we want to go. This is the path I believe will most quickly get us there. Are you with me? That so often it's just about people wanting to feel as though they are bought in and have input and are able to come with you along the way. And then one of the things that's interesting about having written a book about work, Josie, is it forced me to really sit with what this means in my personal life and to take stock of a lot of my relationships and friendships and say, is this a person with whom I feel I can show up as my true authentic self? Or is this a person that I feel I have to do a little bit of a performance for? You know what I mean. That's not like you're a completely different person with that person. It just means you're happy Josie or funny Josie or silly Josie um, in order to accommodate the way that they expect you to show up. And I'm just getting too old for that. Like I don't have the energy anymore to show up as that person. And if you accept my premise that in general, work requires an element of performance, that we all don't get the luxury of just like rolling in as our true authentic self at any moment in any work week, then that means you spend anywhere from 30 to 70, depending on your job, hours a week doing an element of performance. So then in the rest of your life, why would you want to surround yourself with anyone except people who allow you to show up as your full, authentic Self, where when you walk away from the interaction you had with them, you feel lighter, happier, better, aligned. You're not anxious. You're not worried. Like that is the direction that I wanted to move in. And part of what that meant was pruning friendships, saying some friendships and some relationships had to go or be marginalized, or, you know, instead of investing in those friendships, investing in other friendships. And it made a tremendous difference 
in my sense of well-being. Yeah, that's like to have that almost like reality check with yourself of like, how am I feeling after I'm with these people? I think that's a really powerful point because I, reading your book and, and talking to you, I was thinking like, what is true me and what is like me knowing how to be liked? You know, and, and so I think there's such a fine line there. Like, do you Wait, have but advice? did you find an answer to that question, Josie? <laughs> I'm still searching. I definitely have thought about it for sure. Talked to my therapist about it. It's been very helpful. I just think so many people have that experience where they're, they probably, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are like, what is my true authentic self? And, and like you said, people of color have a different experience with that terminology. Like, do you have any advice for being able to decipher for each individual who should they be showing up as and should, meaning who are they that they can allow themselves to show up as versus what is all this conditioning that has taught them how to be liked? And it's almost like the survival mechanism of like, I know how to make people laugh. I know how to make people comfortable. And like, and being able to decipher your true self from that version of you, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm a failed life coach, meaning I took like one <laughs> module of life training and then was like, I really like this and I want to hire a life coach, but I'm not going to be a life coach. <laughs> and one of the biggest things that I walked away with is that most people know exactly what they want to do. And most people know exactly who they are. And really it comes down to being brave enough to being able and willing to say that out loud and to live in that truth. So I'm sure there's there are some great behavioral therapies. Um, I've done some exercises with a life coach that has helped me get closer to that answer. But the truth is, before I did that exercise, I knew, like I'm at my essence. I I love people. I care about people. I need a lot of time by myself. I'm super bossy and super direct. Like, and I don't want to downplay those things about myself to make other people more comfortable. But I know that. And so then the choice is who I surround myself with and whether or not I show up as that person, opening myself up to the vulnerability that other people won't like that person. And then I'm mature enough to say, okay, then that's not a match. Like It's not that I'm doing something wrong. It's also also not that you're wrong. It's just that we in this moment are not a fit. Um, which I think is funny because I think we think about that a lot in terms of partnerships. And I don't think we think about it as much in terms of friendships, that friendships are a thing that can constantly be evaluated and reevaluated, that they can wax and they can wane, um, that we can give ourselves time to grow apart and grow back together. Because sometimes the moment we're in is just, it's different. Um, and we have to give ourselves that grace. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think for me, something that was helpful that like struck from reading your book and, and I think going through the own process of, of finding my own identity and separating that from cultural conditioning is like, who would I act? What characteristics would I have if it were not up to me to make other people comfortable? I know everyone's going to have mm-hmm. like a different kind of question that makes them think. But for me, I've, I've noticed that my biggest thing, this is very quickly becoming a therapy session for me. I'm loving but, it. I'm living for it. <laughs> but that it's like, let me remove that lens I have that my innate job in life is to make every single person I talk to feel comfortable. If I removed that, how would I actually act? And that to me has been a a question that has really helped me decipher between, again, the likability trap and like showing up as my true self. Acting on that obviously is a whole different thing. But, But I think to your point, just being able to know and understand and own that and name it is really a a very powerful 
powerful thing. And I know obviously a lot of women, like your entire book was very much focused on the workplace and also politics is another really interesting factor. I know we could dive really deep into that, but it's very much focused on the workplace, especially with all of the history within it of like having to make ourselves more, you know, quote masculine. I think even in like the way we dress, like there was, you know, wearing pantsuits, you could be taken seriously, not wearing like a sundress and uh, flirty sandals. And so it's like, all about the way we are presenting ourselves to be more masculine. And so I think obviously the workplace, there's a a huge, 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 huge problem with that still. Um, I know you already mentioned the Goldilocks conundrum. Can you talk a little bit even more about that in depth and like what are those common likability traps for women in the workplace and how do we get out of it? Like what is the answer? Again, a very big question. No, I love your big questions, Josie. Um, imagine you're a woman and you are in a feedback session. Uh, you generally have gotten one of two sets of feedback. You have either been told you are too much, too assertive, too aggressive, you need to tone it down. Or you have been told that everybody likes you, you're so warm, you just don't have it. And no one can really define for you what it is, um, but it is getting in the way of your ascending. And it's, you know, generally, there are lots of terms. You, you, you don't take up enough oxygen, you don't take up enough space. It's just, it's generally code word for you're not as aggressive or assertive as we think a leader should be. And then I think part of what's interesting too, Josie, is I think there are a lot of women who like myself who've gotten both sets of feedback in different contexts, which just shows you how context-specific that feedback is, right? That if I... I'm the type of person that if I were working in investment banking, right? Like a super hard-charging industry, I would probably be told I'm not assertive enough. Even for example, when I was working in television, but I lived in Miami, culturally, I was very assertive and very direct. And it was intimated to me that I needed to tone it down. So it can be, can have a lot to do with the context of the places that you're working in. And one of the best pieces of advice that I got in the course of researching for this book was this idea that if someone sits down with you in a feedback session and they say, Josie, you're just too assertive, that you say, thank you for that feedback, assertive compared to whom? Like, would you say that about Jim? Would you say that about Dave? Are they... Am I more assertive than they are? And it gives the person who's giving you that feedback an opportunity to say, like, would I say that to Jim? Would I say that to Joe? Like, you know, or is this something that does have a little bit of my own bias baked into it? And the other thing, and I actually like this even more because I think it 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 feels more natural to me is to say, can you draw a line for me from how you perceive the way I show up to how it is impacting the results of the work? And you have to allow for the possibility that there will be a connection, right? That I'll be able to say to you, Josie, I know you think of yourself as being really deliberate, but sometimes for me, that shows up as you being indecisive. Two weeks ago, we had a deck due to this customer. You spent 48 hours tinkering with the font and we were then a week late in delivering the deck. Like That's like an example that you can actually take and apply and say, okay, the way that I am showing up is affecting the team and the results and the work of the team. But sometimes there is no, sometimes there is no connection between how you show up and the results of the work. Sometimes people just really want to tell you how they feel about you, likely because you and they have a very different leadership style. I am not particularly comfortable with confrontation, especially with people lateral to me. So when I work on teams with people who are really comfortable with confrontation, I tend to shrink back. I need those people on my teams. If you have a team where no one is comfortable with confrontation, then nothing ever gets done. 
problems never get solved. They just fester. I had a team where we all, like did a, an, uh, an analysis and we all came out in the same leadership quadrant where we like got along and we liked each other. And the person who was running you know, the, the session, they were like, so do you guys get anything done? And we we're like, nope. Like we're just like a team of like happy, like get alongers who just weren't able to advance things because we weren't pushing each other. I think what you just described was the perfect example of someone not agreeing with or appreciating a quality about you. And that is different than the likability trap, right? Because it's not coming from their own bias. It's like sometimes someone will not like something and they want more of you, whether that's at work, they're asking you to be more assertive, something like, I think that you, that actually is a good clarifier, the difference between a quality about yours that you need to change in order for your job. Maybe your friend is asking for more of you versus the likability trap of like, there's all this bias about. So I think that was a really, really important point that you just made. And then when you said that thing about um, like the first point you made of, of ask them compared to who, that gave me chills because it is such a powerful, even statement to ask yourself of like, I'm not enough I'm not XYZ compared to who. And I think that that just really reflects how likability in itself is so subjective. And so to turn it on to the person who is expressing that to you is so, it just, it's so powerful. I think that that is seriously going to help so many people because it is turning that back onto the person who's making that assessment and asking them to kind of be honest with themselves of where is that coming from? So I think that was extremely effective. I'm so glad you find it useful. And listen, there's like a whole part of the book that is for people who are actually in a position like where they're in a workplace because so much of this is about the way that feedback gets structured, which I know doesn't sound super sexy, but it's like, are you getting your feedback from one person or are you getting your feedback from multiple people? Because it should be coming from multiple people and it should be coming from multiple people who've directly worked with you. Like if someone's giving you feedback who's never actually worked with you, that's a problem. They're basically mm-hmm. saying, here's the office perception of you, Josie, differently than I worked with you and this is how our work went down. Totally. And then it's all based on whether my initial I like you or I don't. Mm-hmm. That's also making me wonder about like the kind of just throwing confidence in there, like self-confidence, like I guess I'm, I'm so curious your thoughts on if some, if, for example, like going with the, you know, you're receiving feedback. I think a a lot of that for people, whether they're receiving feedback from their employer, whether it's coming from a partner, whether it's coming from a friend, when you're receiving feedback, it can often affect our own self-worth. Is there a difference? And how do we know the difference if so between this is affecting my confidence and I'm allowing it to now change my self-worth versus like actually good feedback that we're like, oh, I can grow in this. Like how does someone find that in between of letting it sink in versus there's also a lot of people who are like, I don't need your feedback. Like for example, on the podcast, like receiving feedback from people, I am so in the mindset of like, okay, yeah, like I really need to fix everything versus there's a lot of people that are like, I'm not like, I'm perfect as I am. Like, screw you. If you don't like it, like, is there a happy medium? I know it's kind of going back to those two different types of people. Josie, this is where it now becomes a therapy session for me. Yeah. It's, (laughs) it's, well, I think, I think here's the thing, which is you are now a public person. And so I think public people deal with this at a magnified level where it's not just that you're getting feedback 
from your manager. It's not just that you're comparing yourself to the person who sits at the cubicle next to you. You are now getting feedback from everyone who listens to this podcast. And Josie loves you. Thank you for listening. But also- I love you all. But also it's, it's a lot, especially because you have an asymmetric relationship with all these listeners where they spend an hour with you and you don't know if they're a real person or a Russian bot when they're leaving a comment on your social media or they're leaving a review. I think though, more and more of us are public people in ways that we don't even really recognize. Like if you have a TikTok account, if you have an Instagram account, if it is public, like you are now a person who people believe is available for consumption, even if that's not how you see yourself. And part of what we know about social media is that what gets rewarded gets replicated. So, you know, if you're like taking a million selfies and and your like count is flying up, you're going to post more selfies. Where if I'm like, here are the books I've been reading this month and it's got five likes, there's less of an impulse to do that every time you read a book that you like. Um, that I think is changing the way that we show up in the world, right? Like, are you showing up as your true authentic self? Or are you showing up as the person um, that is being rewarded? Your question was about confidence. And I think to me, it's about, can I operationalize? One, can I even operationalize the feedback that was given to me, right? Like on my podcast, for example, we for a while were using like emo music underneath like especially riveting points. And listeners came in and they were like, please don't ever do that again. Okay. <laughs> there was a critical mass of them. And it was clearly like, okay, this is distracting. And it is easy enough to take this out. Where when people talk to me about my voice, for example, like too high, too low, too much vocal fry, I'm going to be 40. This is it. This is the voice that we are working with. So like, I am so sorry if it is not for you. There are so many other people you can listen to on television. I the amount of time and energy it would take me to change that, fix that, that I could pour into something else, it isn't worth it to me. And I get that I could make the argument that it's like, I'm a professional communicator. People being able to listen to me, hear me, consume me actually is important, actually has a value. I've just decided it's not the thing I want to invest in. I would rather invest in being more knowledgeable. I would rather invest in showing up as a fully aligned person. I would rather invest in getting the facts of the story right. That's more important to me. And, and so at some point, I think it also becomes about a hierarchy of priority and needs. And like, what is important to you, Josie? If someone says something about you is getting in the way of your communicating with them, does that matter to you? Are you willing to fix it? And at what cost? What's the trade-off? That's like higher level thinking. And I think it's why one thing I have found really helpful is having a group of girlfriends who I am in some way professionally connected to or lateral to, like they're at the same stage of life. And I really feel like they see me, get me, root for me. They're not cheerleaders. They see my deficiencies and my shortcomings, but they have so much belief in my ability and potential that they want to help me grow that. And I can come to them and I can say, someone who was watching on Saturday night said I need to deal with my canine teeth because I would be really pretty if I didn't look like a vampire. And that's the group of friends that I trust that either they can say like, yeah, it's time for you to save up for some veneers or Alicia, like you've never thought about your teeth. 
Like, why are you standing in the mirror at 40 years old, examining teeth that you've had for the last 40 years? Like, you're fine. Like, move on, move along. But sometimes you get so inside your own head that having a group you can externalize those things to who you can say, someone said I was too assertive. Here's what happened. Did I misunderstand something about the situation? It's not, it's not cheerleaders, not someone who's like, no, Josie, you're the best. You're always right. No, you got enough of those people. It's someone who really can help you sort through which feedback to keep and which to toss in the trash. Yeah. It's like having that team behind you of like who to trust and who to like genuinely appreciate their opinion. I think that's a really helpful way too, to almost like rank it for yourself. Cause obviously that's going to look different to each of us in every situation of what is growth. Like what is a change we're making to be better, to grow, to become more of who we are, what we're meant to do versus what is just the self-doubt and what is that imposter syndrome or lack of confidence. It's, I think that that's a really helpful way to almost like differentiate between the two because they can so easily be blurred. So I think that all the advice that you just said was so, so helpful. Moving into now kind of like the more social part of this, it almost like the line feels very blurred too in friendships where being liked is a part of friendships. Like you can't be friends with someone who doesn't like you. Where does the likability trap show up in our friendships? And what is the difference between you know, just genuinely connecting and caring about the way someone else sees you because you're friends and falling into the unhealthy likability trap when it comes to your friendships? One of the biggest places where I ran into this question myself, and I write about this in the book, is about there being askers and guessers in the world. So I am a guesser. I never want to put someone in a position where they feel as though I have pinned them into a corner or asked them for something they are not ready to give. An asker just asks. An asker asks for what they want. An asker asks for what they need because they always assume that the person on the other side of that ask has the capacity and the free will to say no. So for example, I have a best friend that I have had since high school and she is an asker. She will ask you to pick her up at the airport. She will ask to sleep at your house. She will ask for lots of things in part because she always feels like you can say no. I will never ask for anything. Instead, I will do this. I will say, hey, are you around on Tuesday night? Hey, are you doing anything around 7 o'clock? Hey, you know my flight lands then. And hope that the other person offers up magically the thing um, that I want or need. And to me, that has been a core tension point and a core learning in friendships, which is understanding who's an asker and who's a guesser. I used to think that askers were really constantly just putting me in uncomfortable positions like as a thing that they enjoyed doing. It's like, no, they just operate completely differently in the world. I read this book in the last few weeks that has really changed my life. It's um, it's called Essentialism. I forget the subtitle. It's something like, like The Art of Doing Less. And one of the things that I learned from it is this sort of like, if someone asks you for something, do you always have the ability to counter? Like if someone's like, can you pick me up and can I borrow your car? You say, no, but I'm willing to leave my keys for you at my front door. Like that you always have sort of a way of saying, this is what I am willing to do. And so to me, the likability trap for me in friendships often comes down to boundaries and what I am willing to do and not willing to do and how I'm willing to show up and how I'm not willing to show up. That's huge. I think that that even like allowing yourself to know there's another option. It's not, I'm going to say no, or I'm going to say yes, that there's another option. That in itself is is 
so profound and so helpful because it is also allowing you to find out what that boundary is. Because so often we're like, okay, do I do it? Do I stress myself out to go pick her up in the airport? Or do I say no and I'll feel bad? So then there's no thought process of like, what would I be willing to do? Like genuinely, what would I be willing to do? So that in itself is so interesting. Does that also apply to like family dynamics, like with, you know, relatives or even within like with your children, with your spouse? Like, is there anything that's different with family dynamics and likability trap? Ooh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I think family is more complicated because I think family, we have the same, the same way we develop patterns with friends. We have patterns with our family, but because they're our family, they are longer standing almost by definition than they are with friends. And so I think sometimes when you build boundaries or when you just want to show up in a different way than you were showing up before, that can be really unnerving for family. And they can say, well, you didn't used to have a boundary around this. You didn't used to show up this way. You used to laugh at these jokes, which we both knew were inappropriate, but you don't want to do that anymore. Why? And so, yeah, I think that that requires a whole different element of navigating and understanding the extent to which you have shown up the way that someone else wants and expects you to show up, especially when you're talking about parents who are often the people who, again, sometimes the best of intentions conditioned you to show up in a specific way, conditioned you to show up to be accommodating, um, conditioned you to sort of, to, you know, be super assertive to everyone except them, <laughs> like whatever it is, um, you know, rejiggering that dynamic, I think is, is among the hardest things we're called upon to do. A hundred percent. I hear that all the time with people, even dealing with the guilt of like, my mom wants me to come home for the holidays or like, I, you know, I'm not going to sit and talk to her for 20 minutes. And she like, there's so much, I think, guilt and almost like suppressing our genuine desires when it comes to our families, because there's that added layer of the expectations and the guilt tripping. And and so I think all of the tips that you've given, I think can certainly be applied to family dynamics of checking in with what really are you willing to do? Who is your true self without the, you know, external approval and without the external likability? Like all of these tips that you've given have, I, I think can really be applied to family dynamics we've covered so much. This has been like the most fascinating conversation, honestly. Like I could, I You're have so, so many good, Josie. You I kept could, us moving. <laughs> well, I could sit here and talk to you for so long. I have so many other questions, like individual uh, examples I want to ask you about, but let's just say someone listening to all of this is like nodding their head, like hallelujah. You're speaking to the choir. I feel this so strongly. Are there any like tangible steps you recommend someone just start doing today? Like small, easy, simple to start removing themselves and getting out of the likability trap? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the best work we can do is for each other. So listen to the language that you use, listen to the language that other people use. I used the example already of, you know, is a person indecisive or are they deliberate? Is a person emotional about their work or are they passionate about their work? Because, you know, it changes how you want to work with people. Like a word that I love, like a word I think is one of the highest compliments is the word helpful. You know, so every time you say this is super helpful, I'm like, thank you. Thank you, Josie. Um, One of the things I learned is that if you're talking about a woman who is in an entry level or administrative position and you call her helpful, it just has the effect of people thinking of her as a super junior person. So instead of saying, you know, Emma was super helpful, saying... Emma scheduled the recording. She 
ran through the first draft of the edit. She gave us great notes. Like when you are specific about what someone brings to the work or brings to the project, that has a greater chance of helping other people see them as a value add. Because if you tell me someone's helpful, I don't know if they ran the copy machine. Like I don't know what they did. So being careful about your language or being more mindful of your language when you hear other people flipping it for them, saying, is she emotional or is she passionate? Like, can I fix that for you? Uh, my husband and I go through this a lot now because you know he's lived through the writing of this book with me where he'll be like, I'm having someone I'm not finding likable. And we'll talk through it. What is it about this other person and the way that they show up that is creating some type of reaction in him? And often it is either that they are exactly the same and or that they are diametrically opposed. And we find language and ways to talk about it that I think is much more constructive. But then there's this, which is just that the most helpful thing you can do for another woman is to act as her sponsor. And by that, I mean, even though you're younger than me, Josie, I think we still sort of grew up in the same framework of if you just found the right mentor, they would pull back your curtain like the Wizard of Oz and there would be your career in your life. And it's like, it just doesn't work that way. And what women really need are people who have big Rolodexes and are willing to leverage that Rolodex. If you are too young to know what a Rolodex is, it is a list of names and phone numbers and emails um, to leverage it for somebody else. To say like, Josie, you conducted such an amazing interview. I want to introduce you to X, Y, Z because I know that they are looking for someone who can have these types of conversations. They can do live events, who can host things. Like, I think you'd be a great fit. That's the type of thing that takes your career to the next level. If you work in the same organization, putting someone on a stretch assignment, putting someone's name up for promotion that you're like, we have a manager position open. I think that Sarah would be incredible for it. And then if that all feels too cumbersome or too transactional, just like when you are in a room where there is opportunity, where there is capital, say a woman's name who you admire. Say it so many times that people forget that it is her name and not your own because that type of someone said this in this book, the type of table thumping of like, if you're going to go with someone, go with this person. That's what turns things around for women. It's what gets them out from underneath the likability trap because people aren't questioning, is this person a likable leader? They are being told they're a leader who knows how to get it done. And there's no one who can argue with that. So that's the thing. Go forth, do that today. That is so powerful. I mean, wow. And I love that the big takeaway is to start from within yourself and changing that bias within yourself. And then how you can, that can trickle down into other women too. Like that is powerful. That's so powerful. Can we end on some rapid fire questions? Oh, okay. I always get nervous with the rapid fire. Go. I'm, I know. I, like really I always say rapid fire and then they become like really long answers. So it's totally fine. I'll try my best not Take to. Take your time. Okay. <laughs> okay. First question. I think you can answer this easily. The biggest difference you found between your 20s and 30s? I spent my 20s trying to sell and I have spent my 30s thinking about what I want to buy. Oh my God. That is good. That literally tattooed that on me. That is so good. Whoa. That is, I think that's the best answer, honestly. Okay. This is a selfish question I want to know. Favorite celebrity you've ever interviewed? Christella Alonso and I met when she was launching her sitcom, Christella. I think it's eight years ago. And we clicked so immediately that we became 
fast friends and we've developed a friendship in that moment. And what I love about her and about that interview is she came with such a full heart and she was so present. I mean, you interview people all the time. Like, you know, when someone is mailing it in and you know, when someone like is there with you and she was there with me and just always treasure that. That's actually a really great answer because it's like the qualities and the connection like is is such a a better source of i guess inspiration than you know was flashy and had this great resume and which obviously you know is is there too but um so that's an amazing answer that's so fascinating best piece of advice you've ever received you don't have to take every piece of advice that you're given love that love that Okay. Then last rapid fire question, leave our audience with a book, a podcast, obviously your own, um, any other resource that you recommend? Julieka Lantigua, who executive produces my podcast, Latina to Latina, has a really great podcast of her own called How to Talk to Mommy and Papi About Anything. And it is for first-generation Americans who are transversing complicated conversations about anything from mental health to finances. And how do you have that conversation when it's with a parent who grew up in a completely different cultural context? I love listening to it. Fascinating. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. Wow. Well, thank you, Alicia. I cannot literally thank you enough. This was a mind-blowing conversation for me. This was so fascinating. I know our audience is going to love it. Let people know where they can find you, where they can get the book, everything about you. Okay. So I am mostly an Instagram person. So at Alicia Menendez XO, I'm also on Twitter, but sparingly and TikTok and all the places. Um, the book is available wherever you buy books. If you do buy it, uh, please leave a review um, because there were one or two people who really didn't like it and they were very aggressive <laughs> in the reviews. And I still see this is the thing you can write a whole book about letting go of likability and be 100%. 3 years out from writing the book and still checking the reviews <laughs> so i'm going to leave a review i'm certainly going to because it's well deserved thank you so much alicia for coming on i literally want to have you back every single month because i have so many more questions for you so thank you and i'm sure we'll do a part 2 soon but it was so great to talk to you thank you Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 